I wanted to briefly explain some of what's on the table. And actually, while I'm doing that, I'm going to pass out these cards which relate to the last session. We've created some what we call counseling cards. I don't know. You might do one per couple or family, because I'm not sure I have enough to get around everybody. But um, over here are cards that are free, but just for different topics, coming up with something maybe like this is going to be one very specifically that we're passing out about talking to yourself. But likewise, there's one for anger, five things to tell myself when I'm tempted to be angry. Yesterday we talked with some counselors about dealing with abuse and um, issues of true, versus, true repentance versus worldly sorrow characteristics that can be really helpful uh, if someone has been mistreated or is he really repentant or unfaithful in marriage. And then there's one which also would fit with someone who said it's called five things to tell myself when I feel rejected. And actually this one was, many of these were actually composed in the heat of counseling. Uh, the anger one, I had so many cases where people were angry <laughs> that I was saying, well, what are the things you need to tell yourself from the Bible when you're struggling with anger? And I would go way over if I went through them now, but that's what it is. It actually goes along with one of these little booklets, Help My Anger is Out of Control, where it develops it more thoroughly. The one on uh, five things to tell myself when I've been rejected, it was actually a situation where there was a woman who was a fairly new Christian in middle age, had married a man also middle-aged who had never been married, and this guy should have never been married, <laughs> just very immature and selfish, and... They were in a pretty good church, but anyway, they were coming to us for counseling. And the guy just said, you know, it's just not worth trying. And he just walked out of the session. And there I am with this poor woman who was trying to make the marriage work. She's in tears. Um, pretty sure I brought another woman into the room so I wouldn't be alone with her, which is my practice. But what do I say to someone like this? What, what can I say from the Word of God tell myself, or what can she tell herself from the Word of God when she has been rejected? So that's what that card is. And you're welcome to each pick up you know, one of those uh, when you're done. Um, and they're on my website, uh, jimneuheiser.com, and you can download and print your own by the thousand. We don't sell them. We spend money making them. <laughs> and um, I'll just mention a couple of the things in terms of books, which the, my load going back is already going to be lighter. Um, I've had the privilege of writing three books having to do with parenting. There's actually a fourth one coming out. But just to kind of summarize what they are in case you have interest. Um, when Good Kids Make Bad Choices, I co-authored with Elise Fitzpatrick, and it's really biblical wisdom for dealing with rebellious teens. Um, how do you love them without enabling them? Uh, what do you do when they get completely out of control? Deuteronomy, was it 17, 21, whatever it is. Um, then You Never Stop Being a Parent as a follow-up, also wrote with Elise, which is relationship between parents and adult kids, and what do you do when your kid's marrying someone you don't agree with, going to a lifestyle you don't agree with, um, they won't grow up, they're still living at home, <laughs> and uh, perpetual, uh, anyway. And then this one is very a book, mini book, but it's, parenting is more than a formula that what the Bible teaches about parenting is really pretty simple. Train up, you know, that fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. 
A lot of people have seminars and books saying this is exactly how you do it that is more detailed than the Bible. Those may be a good way of doing it, but it's not the way of doing it, and it can be legalistic. The other aspect is determinism. If you just do it our way, this, your kids will all turn out wonderfully, which can be really discouraging for those of us who kids or adults and aren't doing that great. But I, I explain, here's what the Bible says about why kids turn out the way they do. Here's where the gospel is at the core of what we're trying to do. So that's what that one is about. I've written three books having to do with, there's actually one more parenting book coming up. It's going to be a mini book that's on loving difficult parents. So those of us who are adults who have challenging relationships with parents, uh, there's a mini book. I think it's going to turn into a big book someday because I've had, I've had more counseling and more need for people, you know, what do I do when my parents are squandering my inheritance and they're going to be living in my house soon because they're running out of money or they're divorcing each other or they're not following our rules with the kids, da, 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 da. How do I honor them while upholding our standards? And then there are three on finances. Uh, there's a mini book on kind of facing a financial crisis, overwhelming debt, unemployment. What does the Bible say in dealing with that? There's a devotional, which is in a series by PNR, like 15 of these. Mine is on, you know, kind of daily, two, three page, like daily bread things. And then on Monday, and then this one actually comes out in about three weeks. It's not officially released yet, but it's a question and answer book about financial issues. Uh, somebody asked me, why did you write this? And basically, are you familiar with Ted Tripp, Shepherding a Child's Heart? Well, my statement, I'm not saying I've achieved this, is that before Ted Tripp, people were reading Dobson, and Tripp came along and was so much more biblical. Well, right now, Dave Ramsey's really popular. <laughs> And I would like to kind of take some of the practical side of Dave Ramsey, but make it much more theologically and biblically informed. Um, and so that's what I'm trying to do. It's not, I'm not going to be as popular or rich as Dave Ramsey. Um, but that was the effort, is to try to really have biblically, exegetically, expositorily informed wisdom about financial issues. And then uh, there are a couple of little commentaries in the marriage, divorce, and remarriage book, same format as the money book, question and answers. Um, the first half is actually positively about marriage, and the second half is dealing with the really naughty issues of major marital problems and grounds of divorce and all of that. So that's what they are. Uh, doesn't bother me if you don't buy any of it. it. Like I said yesterday, it doesn't change my life either way. I'm just thankful for publishers who are willing to uh, do this. And from my standpoint, it, when I've written it, it has tended to be when I, in counseling, I saw a need, kind of like the cards, where I didn't have something I could give to people who had rebellious teens or weird things with their adult kids. So they, well, let's work on something. <laughs> what does the Bible say? And it's also to me an illustration of the sufficiency of Scripture. I've never seen something come along in counseling for which the Bible doesn't have wonderful and profound answers. And so, Anyway, that's my life. Okay, so now back to depression. Um, we took some of the psalms, and tomorrow morning, Lord willing, I'm going to take another psalm, which is going to be frustration with kind of life being unfair, Psalm 73. And, but now I'm going to go from the psalms to a narrative. And you know, the psalms are wonderful because you see the full expression poetically but of human emotion, human experience, uh, rejoicing in the Lord, you know, sadness, sorrow, oppression, hope, 
Uh, and I have to admit, the Psalms are good for me because I tend to be a person who likes to live in a narrow emotional range. And I know I want to have a Christ-like range of emotions, and I always have to be kind of expanding my range to get there. Uh, but another place in terms of talking about dealing with depression or sadness, uh, I'm taking an example from the well-known, I assume to you, book of Ruth, uh, using the example of a woman called Naomi. And kind of like you could have said David in Psalm 32, you, you, when you see his symptoms, you could say, well, he's depressed. Uh, night and day, God's hand is heavy upon me, can't sleep, no energy. Well, Naomi is a woman who, in the context of the book of Ruth, she actually says, let me get the language exactly right, the Lord has dealt harshly with me. And there's actually some complication, and I'm going to give you the background of the story for those who aren't completely familiar with it, is that some of it is her fault, <laughs> in my opinion, in my interpretation of the book. It's not just that she was unlucky. It's not just that God decided to shoot arrows at her. I think she's kind of in a mess of her own making. And I actually one time thought of this as like counseling Naomi. What would it have been like to counsel Naomi in Ruth chapter 1 when she says, don't call me cheerful anymore. I want to name change Amara. Bitter. She is a bitter woman. And I actually had a guy who came in to see me, and the card you got was in my counseling with him that that emerged. I'll look at it yet. We'll get to it later. Um, he was a guy in his 40s, wife, kids, and he was very, he was dealing with depression, and it was a combination of believing that his, his life was a failure, some his own fault, some how God has dealt with things. He felt like God had called into ministry when he was young, but he got married and got involved in a career and just kind of absorbed with family and, and, and those responsibilities. And he felt like he kind of took a wrong turn on the highway of life and he's got no way to get back on again because he didn't listen to the call that he thought he had. Now he's an elder in his church. He's discipling men in the church. He's got a great family, amazing wife, but he's just overwhelmed with sadness. And another thing happened is he worked in a business where he did so much to build up the business and make it successful. And then his boss let him go during hard economic times. So he's struggling to make ends meet. And other challenges, he has some physical challenges. He just feels like everything is turned against him. And some of it is God being harsh with him, but some of it also is... I've, I've messed up my life, and there's no way I can fix this. I'm just going to have to kind of run out the string of my years in sadness and sorrow. And his wife was coming in with him, which, by the way, that's another technique thing with depression, is oftentimes a depressed person is so myopic. They're so sad in their dark-colored glasses that it really helps to have somebody who's lived with them to give some perspective on, is this the way he always is? You've been married to him for 20 years, or is this... Temporary. Has this happened before? And often the depressed person can't, they're not lying to you. They just, they're so sad they can't give good answers. And so she was there and she was amazing uh, in terms of just being really, really patient. But I, I think of him as being kind of a male version of, uh, of Naomi. Uh, and, but you know, as we get to this passage, to a depressed person, it just does seem like everything is against them. Verse 13 of Ruth 1, I know my daughters, it is harder for me than you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. Um, 
and this is going to be a story also that really fits with listening to yourself, talking to yourself. And then the card I've given you, I'm going to get to towards the end, is the lies we tell ourselves as opposed to the truth of the Word of God. People who are depressed are lying to themselves, and they're being destroyed by those lies, and they need the truth of the Word of God. Now, to set the context, because I don't know how well everybody knows the context, the book of Ruth is in the latter part of the days of the judges. Are those the good old days? Now, that's like the pits. I'm actually in my daily Bible reading in the days of the judges. It's like the nadir of the entire Bible in terms of the faithfulness, faithlessness of God's people. Well, it was in those days there was a famine, it says in the beginning of the chapter, in Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. And we're told there's this guy named Elimelech, and he takes his family to, verse 1, sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. Now, this is where you read the Old Testament in, in, in context. Here's a narrative. You interpret narrative based upon the law or in the New Testament, the epistles. So going to Moab, good idea, bad idea. It doesn't say here, although the results seem to think it's probably a bad idea. But are there other times in the Old Testament when people left where they were supposed to be and tried to escape trouble? How did that turn out for Abraham and Isaac? Badly every time. Uh, this isn't just like, hey, I'm living in California, now I want to live in Nebraska or something. This is, you're in the covenant land, and you're not free to wander around because these other people are really bad influences, which is going to get to the next thing. Don't intermarry with these people, God had said. Well, that's what Elimelech's sons do. Uh, Malhan and Kilion marry these Moabite women, these foreign women who would turn your hearts away. Why do famines take place under the old covenant? It's not global warming or climate change. God promised in Deuteronomy 28, if you're faithful, it's going to rain, it's going to be good. And if you're faithless, there's going to be drought. Droughts happen because of rebellion and faithlessness. And so if you're, you know, the problem, they as part of the community are part of the problem. And that there's been lots of people stayed in Bethlehem when Naomi comes back. Everybody's there except for her. You know, a lot of people are still there. They survived somehow. God, you know, when we're getting to the passage today, after 10 years or so, the famine ended and Naomi wants to go back. But, you know, they've left, they're trying to escape trouble. And then what happens, like I said, is they're in Moab. And then uh, verse 3, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, dies. She's left with the two sons. And then those sons, and it doesn't explicitly say, but there's Naomi, her sons, her husband's gone, marry Moabite women. Apparently she let that happen, approved of that, whatever. They're violating the law. Um, and what happens to them? Then they die. <laughs> and she's left with Orpah and Ruth. By the way, Oprah gets her name from Orpah, if you want to know a little trivia. Um, you know, and they said, then they're there, and then she's now... Uh, I'm not going to cover this section in, in thoroughly other than just as the background. So when they hear that God has visited the land with rain and the famine is over, she wants to go back. And the daughters-in-law um, initially want to go with her. Orpah says, uh, yeah, finally Orpah goes back to Moab. But this beautiful section in verse 15 uh, and this also is telling of Naomi. So, you know, Naomi's walking back to Bethlehem. Uh, Orpah takes the turn off and goes back to Moab. She's gone forever as far as we're concerned. 
But then Ruth is still clinging to her. Verse 15, then Naomi said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse if anything but death parts you and me. I remember when I was young hearing that at weddings. And it probably could, you know, covenantal faithfulness, it, it's not unrelated, but it's not, it's talking about a mother, actually spectacular, a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law feeling this way, or at least the daughter-in-law feels this way about her mother-in-law. But you know, this is Ruth's conversion. She's turning away from Moab, she's turning uh, to the Lord, um, and now, you know, in verse 18, when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. And now we're actually getting to the part I want to deal with Ruth's despair. I mean, Naomi's despair. And how would you counsel Naomi? Uh, verse 19, so they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned and with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So you have here a great story. By the way, when I go through Old Testament narrative, um, you want to understand what's happening in the context of their situation because their situation is different than ours. You want to see how it applies. First Corinthians 10, 11 says the things that happened to them happened as an example for us to learn from in the new covenant. And you also want to see how it points to Christ. And quite frankly, Ruth is real easy to do those three things with. But here it is for, for Naomi. And, and this is, again, talking to someone who has struggled with depression. Do you feel like your life is bitter? Well, here's Naomi coming into Bethlehem. Bethlehem's probably kind of a small town. And she walks in, and the town is buzzing. And this woman walks in, another woman with her. Um, she's been gone for a long time. Verse 4 says 10 years. And she doesn't look right. I mean, the woman says they're shocked at her appearance. The years have been hard. Again, an analogy would be, you go to a high school reunion, it's your 20th reunion, and people say, you haven't changed a bit. And then they say, the years have not been kind to her behind your back. Uh, there are whispers, perhaps. So who is that woman walking with her? But I think that the sadness of widowhood, losing her sons, probably is on her countenance. Um, and she, again, be a little funny. It's like the first thing she wanted to do is go next door to the DMV and get a name change. <laughs> I'm no longer cheerful, I'm bitter. She is a bitter person. Um, it's so sad for her to come back, probably coming back in, in shame. And remember we said earlier, the depressed people, depression is so often sadness because of loss. And she says in verse 21, I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Uh, she's lost her husband, she's lost her sons. Um, and again, I can relate to Naomi. You know, I've talked about earlier with we lost a son not to death but to unbelief in 2001. 
but then another one in 2002, and then another one who must have been 10 years after that, when he was in his mid-20s, where he turned away. And it's just so hard and so sad. But for her, you know, what it meant to her, too, in the context of, of Israel, is that the hope for people living in the land, and this is the big message of the book, that Naomi is the central character of the book called Ruth. Ruth is kind of the heroine, Boaz is the hero, but Naomi is the person who's got the problem that needs to be solved. And the problem that needs to be solved is that every family in Israel has a, an inheritance, a plot of ground, that their inheritance in the land, which is like a symbol of our place in heaven. And that's why it was so important to have sons. And when Ruth and Orpah wanted to come back, she said, well, I'm too old to have more sons that you could marry them. That's, you know, that, that it, and so the, the great tragedy, I mean, it, it's sad any time to be childless or to lose your children. But where your hope would be that the name of your family would continue and you would have a future in the land of, of in the covenant people of God, that's been totally cut off. The future is completely without hope. She's just going to kind of live out her years as a sad, lonely widow with no prospect for the future for her family. And then she's also lost her standing in the community. She was a married woman. She had two sons. That's a good thing. She was full. You say, well, if you're full, why did you leave? <laughs> but now she's come back with none of that. And she's really lost her hope in God. And this is, it's normal to feel sad when awful things happen to you. In Genesis 23, Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. It's kind of funny in, in counseling. Um, people cry a lot. Caroline actually evaluates sessions with women. She'll tell me how many tissues that session was. You know, a five-tissue five session is not unusual. I saw her the other day, like, carrying a big clump of them out to the trash. Um, what's the first thing people in our culture say when they start crying in front of you? I'm sorry. Well, Romans 12, 15 says, weep with those who weep. I should apologize because I'm not crying. Uh, weeping is a normal human emotion, but we, we don't want that. So most depression isn't a disease. Most depression is sadness. And grief is normal. She's lost a lot. But like many depressed people, especially depressed Christians, there's a temptation to be bitter against the Lord himself. Um, and, and this is a challenge, by the way, of having good theology. If you have bad theology and you don't believe God is sovereign, then just you're unlucky. If you're an atheist, you're extremely unlucky. You know, some atoms collided billions of years ago, and now the result is not favorable to you. Bad stuff happens. You get cancer. Your boyfriend leaves you. You know, the bad things happen in life, calamities. You're in the car wreck. Oh, well, I was just unlucky. But if you believe in a sovereign God who works, as the Bible says, all things after the counsel of his will, that means when horrible things happen, Ultimately, that's come from him. An atheist should not have the problem of evil at all. And, and those of us who understand the sovereignty of God, uh, you know, that my house burned, my spouse got ill, I lost things, people have hurt me. And again, so Naomi recognizes, and the language she uses, the, the different names for God in the Old Testament, and she calls him Shaddai, the Almighty has afflicted me. And I think the name she uses is, he's really strong. I'm poor little me, Naomi. You know, what can I do against almighty God? Uh, he's a bully. 
Now, I would say one aspect of this is she really fails to recognize her own contribution to her problems. Uh, again, it doesn't say how she and her husband decided to leave the house of bread to go to a pagan land. Her, husband, her children did marry pagan women, which, you know, so she's got fault in this that she's not acknowledging, but she's, she's tempted to blame God. Um, there are other biblical characters as well who struggle. Uh, Jacob, when uh, Joseph was gone, Benjamin may have to go. He says, everything is against me. Of course, if you keep reading, no, it's about to get a whole lot better. Um, bitterness can be really dangerous. Uh, Jonah, when uh, his plant dies, he says, I have every reason to be angry, even unto death. The person in the Bible, I think, probably most like Naomi, in my mind, is actually Job. And it's actually interesting, there's similar language in the book of Job to Naomi. Um, Job says, the arrows of the Almighty are within me. And he says, the Almighty has embittered my soul. And you, you so uh, Naomi's got her problems. <laughs> she's got her weaknesses. But I think she's probably a believer who is absolutely overwhelmed by really tough circumstances in life. Now, maybe a difference is I think Job did not seem to have any responsibility for the bad things that happened to him. Naomi has some bad things, but she's just really struggling. Now, in the bigger picture of the book of Ruth, remember, these are the days of the judges, I think Naomi's plight is really a picture of the plight of the people of Israel in the days of the judges, is that here's Israel, and they're being bullied by their neighbors and Philistines, Ammonites, whoever wants, uh, they're just crushing Israel, and they're, they're being bereft of their land. They have no real leadership. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. And so you have the picture of Naomi desperately needs redemption. She needs something that seems to be impossible, which would be some man to come along and make it possible for the name of her family to continue. But Israel desperately needs redemption because they're just being crushed by their enemies, and they deserve every bit of it. And they need something to happen to redeem them. Now, in my translation of the book of Ruth, you know what the last word is? David. <laughs> the, the, the descendant of Naomi, of you know, Ruth and Boaz, Obed, David. Um, God, through this little family, this ordinary family, I mean, one thing is Ruth is like God is concerned about the ordinary family. The other thing is God is going to, through this ordinary family, bring the deliverance that Israel needs to come out of the days of the judges and have a king who will make Israel great again. Better than anybody did for us, in my opinion. Uh, the last political statement, till tomorrow morning. Um, and so I think Naomi's need of redemption is like Israel's need of redemption. And it's like our need of redemption. Of course, all of this coming and pointing to Christ. Now, thinking in terms of depressed people, another aspect of Naomi is that Naomi, she sees all the bad things and she doesn't see all the good things. She doesn't recognize all of God's goodness to her. The hand of the Almighty has afflicted me. Um, there are good things God has done. In verse 6, the famine has ended. God has, blessed, has visited his people, bringing them food. Uh, nothing happens by chance. In verse 22, there's a barley harvest. Um, not only that, in verse 19, it says they, are, they came to Bethlehem. Remember, these are the days of the judges. What do you think about two women apparently traveling alone 
150 kilometers or whatever it would have been. Uh, sounds like a dangerous journey to me. I'm reading the end of the book of Judges. Bad things happen sometimes to women. Uh, God has delivered them safely, given traveling mercies. But even beyond that, you read further back in the Old Testament, God cares for widows and has made provision for them. A father to the fatherless and a judge for widows is God in his holy habitation. God makes a home for the lonely. And actually, the rest of the book of Ruth is provision God has made for widows. And I'm not going to read all the passages. They're in your notes if you want to read them later. But God has made provision of gleaning that widows would not starve, that it was the responsibility of the farmers to leave the corners of their field and not to go over them again. And so Ruth chapter 2 is where Ruth, on behalf of herself and Naomi, appeals to Boaz as the farmer, let me glean in your field so we can eat. So God has made provision for widows and his glorious covenant, which is a wise provision for the poor, that they wouldn't have had in Moab. And so she's not going to starve. God has made provision. And then, of course, chapter 3 and 4, especially chapter 3, God has also made provision in the covenant that a family whose name is about to die out, that a near relative can marry the widow and can produce children. And that's Boaz, who God uses both to fulfill the food part and then the husband part in chapters 3 and 4. And so here she is completely hopeless. And yet she's neglecting the fact that there are Provisions made by God to care for his people. Um, and then also, she says, I have come back empty. How would you feel if you were Ruth, hearing Naomi say that? <laughs> She's not empty. God has given her this redemptrix or whatever you want. I mean, not in a Mary says or anything like that, but given somebody that's going to bring deliverance to her family and this wonderful conversion where and I'm going to be blunt, other children here, but when Ruth, when Naomi tells Ruth, go back to your people and your gods, she's essentially telling, Naomi's telling Ruth, go to hell. Go back to paganism. Go back to false gods. And Ruth says, I'm not going to do it. And Ruth's saying isn't just, I love Naomi. I think, and this is where Naomi is probably Ruth has heard through Naomi the truth of the God of Israel, and Ruth has been converted. Your God shall be my God. Your people shall be my people. And that's, have you ever led somebody to faith? Like Naomi's maybe one of the worst evangelists in all of history. <laughs> she says, go to Moab, and Ruth says, no, I'm going to be converted and come with you. Um, I told you, when I was a brand new Christian, I was in high school, since we have some young people listening when I was in high school, I was a brand new Christian. There was a guy who wanted to be my friend. And I was really serious about the Lord and immature. And I remember we're talking, I think we're shooting baskets in my backyard. And I just tell him, you know, if you want to hang out with me, you need to be serious about the Lord because that's what's important to me. And I really don't have time to be your friend if you don't want to do that. <laughs> well, the guy was converted. <laughs> and this is 45 years ago. 46 years ago, and we're still friends with him and his wife. He married one of Caroline's bridesmaids not long ago, and he's walking with the Lord. And we, I didn't even know all the story. He says, I still have the Bible you gave to me when we were in high school. Now, that's not, I was no better than Naomi, perhaps. But she's blind to what God has done. Um, 
also she's blind to the reality that God is committed to his covenant people, that he will bring good out of the calamities that have occurred to them. You know, Jeremiah 20 and 11, and another hard time for Israel, it says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not calamity, to give you a future and a hope. And Naomi, he's like Jacob, where, oh, everything's against me, all is lost. Naomi doesn't realize what God is about to do. This book is going to end with Naomi holding a baby. And she's going to be holding, and they're even going to say, and this is why the book is about Naomi, they said, Naomi has a redeemer. Naomi has a son. Now, Ruth had the baby. <laughs> she did the hard part. But this was Naomi's baby to continue. The, you know, Naomi, it gets redeemed. And so God is redeeming Naomi while she thinks everything's against her. God is redeeming Israel when in the days of the judges, they thought everything was against them. And God is working redemption for, for humanity. And when you get to the New Testament, you go to the genealogy of Jesus, there's Ruth, Naomi's daughter-in-law, whom she led to faith somehow. Um, and she doesn't see any of it. So how do you help people like this? Uh, somebody came up to me during the break and said it helped to be reminded how it feels for people who are depressed, for those of us who don't deal with it. <laughs> that uh, we should have compassion for the Naomi's. And you may be one someday, but when you think of people who are widowed, whose children have died or have been turned from the Lord, they've, they've experienced great loss. Weep with those who weep. Um, that we should care. You know, again, the, the, the Proverbs that warn against even taking the, the sadness of others lightly and singing songs to a sad heart. Uh, the spirit of man can endure his sickness, but it's for a broken spirit who can bear it. We, we should care for them, be patient with them. You know, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God our Father is this, to visit widows and orphans in their distress. And their distress may not just be financial distress. It may be overwhelming sadness and we can be their friends. And it, it may not be initially that they're going to be fun to be around. I doubt if Ruth enjoyed Naomi's company at this particular stage. Um, I'll say one other thing for depressed people is you see someone who's struggling, and you may think, what's wrong with them? Why can't they be cheerful and happy and moving fast in life like I am? For them to get up in the morning and fulfill their basic responsibilities may be heroic in terms of the struggle they're having. And we should appreciate that. And I'll tell them that as well. Thank God you didn't stay in bed all day today. He's the one who got you out of bed. But we should recognize that struggle and have sympathy. And then we need to be careful not to give in to the bitterness we're tempted to have against God. And this is where Naomi, even her good theology, and again, I, I, I get it in that if you believe in election, and then someone you love dies, and it appears they weren't believers. Faith is a struggle sometimes. Or people you care about now aren't believers. And, and you have to be quiet and, and trust God. And tomorrow we'll talk about this in Psalm 73, where the psalmist says, My feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. He was tempted to be upset with God about how life was going. Uh, you know, Job, at the end of the story, says, I lay my hand on my mouth. And so I have that experience in terms of unbelieving sons where I have struggles and I have to, I, we pray, strengthen our faith, help us to trust God, help us not to think or speak ill of God. Um, and so 
I've already really talked with some of the things on the outline. Just, you know, we need to be gentle and compassionate. But what are some things you can do to help? And I mentioned earlier the guy I was counseling, uh, call him Rob, and um, he had the unemployment and been mistreated and felt like he missed the bus in term or the the, the turnoff in terms of life. He had many regrets about the past. He was not happy about the present. He felt he had lost so much. Well, what can you do? Well, I've listed some things. I'm going to kind of camp on one of them, but some of the basic things are just to remember who God is. The Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. His faithfulness to all generations. We need to remember the truth of who God is when we're tempted to say he's not been fair. He is fair. He's better than fair. Uh, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in, abounding in loving kindness and truth, as the Lord spoke through Moses. Um, we need to remember what God has done for us in Christ, that we are new creation in Christ, that our old self has died. We're united with him in baptism. God has done wonderful things for me in Christ. And then to think eschatologically, <laughs> that our present trials are momentary and light compared to the glory yet to be revealed. There's a day coming when every tear will be wiped away, where we will have future joy, that God has purpose in our trials. We need to remember the truth about these things. Sometimes it really helps depressed people just to remind them, um, okay, four years ago you went through something like this, and of course it was no fun, but God brought you out of it. And seven years ago you went through it, and there's hope even in the short term, that uh, God will deliver you. And you have to endure now. Endurance is such a, an important Christian quality in the midst of trials. As James says, you know, to endure in our trials, let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. As you endure, there's not just hope that someday you'll be in heaven and you'll feel better, but even in this life, uh, God will cycle you out of it. And there's hope as well. A lot of what happens in the Psalms, actually, is recollection of God's past faithfulness. Like, everything's a mess now, but we remember the Exodus. <laughs> we remember the time, other time we were in a mess, and God helped us. And so I'm going to remember God's faithfulness now uh, in the hope for the future he will be faithful again. Uh, Psalm 77, 11 is one verse I have. I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. I will remember your works of old, to meditate upon those things. Uh, Philippians 4 talks about the person who's anxious to pray with thanksgiving. And so even to recognize present manifestations of the goodness of God and to be thankful for those. Like Naomi, there were so many things she could be thankful for that presently she seems blinded to. Every good and perfect gift is from above. And then this is the little exercise. And this is actually something, hopefully I left myself a card. I think I'd held one back, yeah. So this card actually came out of my counseling with this Rob guy. And this is an assignment I've been giving a lot lately. I've been teaching my students to try this. And it, it, some of it comes from John 8, 44, that you know, Satan is, has been a liar from the beginning, and he's a murderer. And back to Lloyd-Jones, stop listening to yourself, start talking to yourself. To identify specifically the lies you're telling yourself and then come up with truth from the Bible that answers the lies as you're engaged in the spiritual warfare, as you're engaged in the spiritual battle. And some ways, like things like these cards can help, is that if your mind goes on autopilot, you tend to tell yourself the lies and listen to yourself. But another thing, you know, read scripture, uh, 
then these all have lots of scripture with them. So not just read the statement, but read the scripture that goes along with it to keep filling your mind with what's true. It's like Philippians 4, whatever is good and true and right and honorable, dwell on these things, think on these things uh, as, you're, as you're fighting this great battle. And so these are actually came from the list that Rob made, and Rob being a, an elder in a good church, he knew his Bible well and engaged in the battle well. But you know, what am I telling myself? Well, God is against me. That's like Naomi. Um, but truth to tell myself, no, God is for me. You know, Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? He's the giver of every good gift. My situation is hopeless. It's beyond redemption. Again, I've, I've messed up my life so much. Well, no, as the covenant person, people of God, he has plans for good for us. He does work all things together for good for those who love him who are called according to his purpose. I'm all alone. That's like uh, the prophet um, Elijah. There's nobody else. Um, my family has forsaken me. No, God is with me. He will never leave me nor forsake me. And even if my family forsakes me, he will be with me. He's the good shepherd who never leaves me. I can't live without blank. That's a very common one. The girl whose boyfriend broke up with her. All she wants is him. Well, you can live with that. That's the Jeremiah 17 again. If you, if you trust in men, you're, you're going to die. You're going to be like the bush in the desert. It's learning to trust in God and find your satisfaction in Him. And it's actually getting the stuff we love most taken away from us that forces us to rely upon God and learn, help us to learn to be dependent upon Him you know, when the drought comes, you have to find the river. Um, that yes, God is all I need. I love Isaiah 55 as well. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Come to the waters, come buy and eat without money, without cost. God offers that which will satisfy us. Um, another one, I've ruined my life by my sin. You know, I, Naomi certainly made some horrible decisions. David made some horrible sinful choices. Um, Rob felt like he had you know, failed to fulfill his duties that he thought he had to God. Well, if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. Isaiah 55, later on, it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion upon him, and he will abundantly pardon. God, like the father the prodigal son, has compassion upon us even when we are in a mess of our own making like Naomi, like Rob, perhaps, that he is gracious and forgiving. Well, my life is just unfair. Come back tomorrow for that one. No, God is more than fair. He's treated us far better than our sins deserve. Well, God just doesn't care. Back to Isaiah 45. He says, more, more, sooner could a mother forget her nursing baby than I could forget you, is what he says of his covenant people. He's given his life for you. And then the last, I am no good. Well, that's true, actually. <laughs> that's where Paul can say, I have a righteousness not of my own that comes from keeping the law, but the righteousness which comes from God by faith. So much of people's sadness is, I feel badly about myself because I haven't accomplished things. People don't think I'm attractive and intelligent and successful. That's not the source of your security. Is how good you are, building up your self-esteem. Your security is, is that you are in Christ and you are his beloved child and he loves you as you are in spite of the fact that you may be a mess. And that can never be taken away from you. you know, Paul says, it's a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am foremost, of whom I am chief. So rather than, oh, I feel so badly about myself because I'm, 
I messed up or I'm not great or whatever. I'm accepted by God in Christ, and that's where I find my security. And so this is just an example, by the way. And different people with different struggles are listening to different lies. A lot of times if you're counseling them, you hear the lies coming out of your mouth, and I'm writing some of them down. Like, uh, But then can they? You know, let, the Bible has answers for every single lie. Um, it's, I've already quoted Philippians 4. It's choosing what you think about. Your mind is not on autopilot. You have to force your mind to think about the things that are good and right and profitable. Um, to resist the temptation to look to an idol for comfort. I've already mentioned the girl who finds another guy or the person who turns to excessive drink or other gluttonies, you know, learning to turn to God. Um, you know, filling your mind with the Word of God, being in the Word of God, praying, forcing yourself, using the, it's so hard to pray, use biblical prayers to pray. I love using, my favorite is Ephesians 3, 14 to 21, along with the Lord's Prayer, where pray that you'll understand the height, the breadth, the length, the depth of the love of Christ as God strengthens you inwardly by his spirit in the inner man. And then he answers beyond what we could ask or think. Now, if you do all this for a depressed person and you do it for yourself, does that mean you'll feel better right away? Not necessarily. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's a, it's a war. But there's hope. So you know, if you feel like God is against you, if you're not a believer, he is. But if you turn to him and surrender to him, then he will show that he is for you. He will forgive your sins. He will make you new. And as a father, he will care for you. Um, be careful, even as a believer, though. If you if, Don't speak against God. Suffering can be dangerous in that way. Again, but the gospel proves for the believer God is for you. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Uh, Colossians, I also was going to quote. He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then trusting that God is in control. We walk by faith and not by sight. And he has in the past done great things for us. He has made great promises for us. And now we have the privilege of being like other believers in the past who in the midst of troubles and struggles continue to cling to him, realizing it's even his grace that enables us to cling. When I talked about the person who's depressed, who still gets up in the morning and she still tries to care for her children and fulfill whatever responsibilities God has given her, on the human level it's heroic, but on the divine level it's miraculous that it's God. And I can say for myself, and I look back on the worst of the struggles 20 years ago, where I felt so weary, I felt so discouraged, I can look back with great thankfulness. It's a miracle, in a sense, that I didn't quit, that I didn't give up. And it wasn't because I was so great. God sustained me to be able to be a husband and a father and a pastor and a counselor. And I wasn't as productive as I was five years before or five years after, but it's God in his grace who sustained me who never left me nor forsook me. And that's the hope we can share with others. I don't know, I'm done with this one now. Do you want questions or do people want to go eat? <laughs> Is that enough for now?
Okay. Let me pray. Is that okay? Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. I thank you that through the teaching of the word, through the emotional expression of the Psalms, through the narrative, you instruct us, you point us to Christ. Uh, Help us to be compassionate to those who are suffering, including suffering spiritually and emotionally and physically. And for those here who may be struggling, give them hope. Help us to speak the truth to one another and speak the truth to ourselves in the midst of these struggles. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.